Hello and a very warm welcome to the Trap One podcast. I'm Mark. I'm Andrew. I'm James. And I'm Bryn. Thank you very much for joining me, everybody. Now that the dust has settled on the Chibnall tenure of Doctor Who, I thought we'd take a look back over his contribution to the series as head writer and showrunner. So just to take the temperature a little bit before we get into discussion, uh, how does everybody feel about his era now that we've got three full distinct eras of this century's Doctor Who? I think, Andrew, you said you were a Chibnall centrist. <laughs> I am. Um, yeah, I um, have neither hated this era nor loved it as much as the previous two. But I, you know, I've still, there's still been a lot that I've, found to enjoy about it um yeah i feel like you know as yeah we'll get more into the strengths and weaknesses in a moment i feel like broadly speaking i've liked when i felt like it's trying um some new things i've been a bit more mm, when i felt like it's going deep diving into the law basically is um my short summary but i'll let others take say their takes now yeah i i I think I'd definitely follow on from what Andrew said, that kind of um, Chibnall agnosticism approach to the era. Um, you know, I have found bits of this to be, you know, brilliant and unexpected. I think there's been some amazing surprises throughout the last few years. Um, yet, on the whole, I'm not as enamored by Chibnall as a writer, you know, and I'm, I must admit, you know, that's also just a sort of reflection of personal taste. I'm much less familiar with his work outside Doctor Who and the two previous showrunners whose work mm-hmm. outside Doctor Who I've kind of, you know, devoured as part of my extended interest in mm-hmm. the show. So it is an era that I approach from a very different um, perspective, and yet there's been so many um, creative decisions, especially behind-the-scenes decisions, which, again, I'm sure we'll get into more later, but I've been really impressed by these plays, so it's going to be interesting to talk about. I think from my perspective, I did know some of his work and I loved Broadchurch. And when he was first announced, I think my brain was just like, oh, you know, watching Broadchurch and how the story develops and the twists and turns and things. And I, and I thought, it's a really interesting choice for Doctor Who. Weirdly, and we'll come on to it, I think some of his strengths are actually his weaknesses as well. And I and I feel, I well, i put it this way, I hope... And if, you know, in time, people will look back slightly more fondly on his time than maybe they do at the moment. Because I think some of the criticism of him isn't necessarily warranted. Well, it isn't necessarily as bad as, as, as what some people will make out. However, I do think there were things that he got wrong. And I think there are things that he got right, but by accident. Hmm. <laughs> uh, and I'll come on to that as well. I think he's got he's a showrunner who changed the most over their era. I think or their their approach and style the style of their story certainly seems to to change. Watch when you look at season eleven, we had no returning monsters, and there was, I mean, I think I think it was the showrunners that have had that definitive jumping on point or various jumping on points, but it was it was quite a hard reset in that sense, and not having an arc in that first season as well. And also, uh, you know, having three historical stories, or not, not pure historicals, but, but sort of the pseudo-historicals. Pseudo ones, yeah. Yeah, and I think he's talked about sort of going back and reading some of the original ideas from when Doctor Who first started, and that was why he wanted the three companions. 
um, and various things like that that he he wanted to sort of really take it back to the beginning. So it's interesting uh, to go from that approach to then what we got with um, particularly um, the uh, the power of the doctor. I mean, you you couldn't have got a bigger sort of flip flop at all because it, you know he was like, I want no returning aliens, I want no returning characters, I want it to be all fresh. And then by the time you get to the power of the doctor, it's like. Is William Russell still with us? Let's get him in the, let's get him in the studio. It's like, the, and, and, you know, the, the, mm. there's probably good reasons for that. But, yeah, I think you're right. The evolution of where he went in the end was, was, some might say, where he was playing to the fans. Others might say, well, actually, that's, you know, he, he may have twigged and gone, well, actually, let's give fans you know, a bit of a treat because we're coming towards the, the centennial. Whatever it was, it was a complete poles apart from where he started mm-hmm. and what his vision was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it, it does make me wonder about Chibnall's identity as a writer and what he prefers out of that because it seems, mm-hmm. especially with, you know, an episode like The Power of the Doctors, we say right at the end of the run, a lot of the ideas in there, like, you know, the Master as Rasputin and bringing back Ace and Tegan, feel like ideas of him doing what he's wanted to write and thinking this is probably going to be my last ever chance to write Doctor Who. So let's put mm. in, you know, as, as much as possible for things that he's been dreaming about for years, which is why you get these, you know, Dark Simon 2 or whatever. And so it's interesting how that contrasts with Series 11, his first um, opportunity to write the show, or at least to write it where he has the sole creative vision behind it as, as the showrunner. Um that he chooses to avoid that. And I wonder how much of that is almost him trying to rein in his own urges to go the other way. Mm. And then as time mm. has gone on and as he's um, been able to get that out, because there does feel like a lot of the conversation around Series 11 is about how it, elements of it that aim to be more prestige television almost. You know, people point back to that initial trailer at the end of the first episode showing all the, you know, classy actors that were going to be in it mm. and that really feels like it's pushing towards that prestige television and then you can see i think over the course of series 11 chibnall pivoting to having more fun with it maybe and doing these ideas but you know whatever you think of the stories whether you think that one version of doctor who is better quality um in within chibnall's era or not it does feel like he's having more fun and kind of embracing the chaos of it a bit more as it goes on and I, th- I, I think, you know, as I say, my hope is that the, his era will be more fondly remembered. I think there will certainly be stories from the Chibnall era that will be consistently in the top 10 or top 20 because they were just so stand out. And, and, you know, something like Rosa or Demons of the Punjab, which mm. just, you know, wonderful to watch the next week you you probably forget what the story was but there are some stories that that really do stand out where everything seems to come together and then others um that really just don't either don't stick in your memory or stick in your memory for the wrong reason um and i know we we um we spoke previously about the halloween apocalypse when when flux first started i think it was uh, we did a review together on that, Mark. And, and I remember being so excited about this. It was like, here's going to be a six-episode, you know, the, oh, we're going to have cliffhangers back, we're going to have this, mm-hmm. you know, real romp. And it 
you know, for me, sadly, it, it fizzled out <laughs> quite quickly um, and it was a real sort of jumbled mess. But I think part of that is because of COVID, you know, there was cast changes, I believe, you know, and there was lots of things going on. So, again, I think not necessarily all down to Chibnall, but I think if you look at that season <coughs> with the story arc, it was an exciting premise, but it didn't necessarily pan out to the way that maybe he wanted it to. Absolutely. So, with that in mind, uh, I think we first of all talk about Chris Chibnall's strengths uh, as both as, as head writer um, and showrunner. So, I think uh, as we've already alluded to his behind the scenes. He's made a lot of very positive changes in terms of diversity. Um, hmm. You're bringing new writers aboard as well. who have never written for the show. Um, what uh, What else do we think is uh, would go down in his strengths column. I think the um, historicals of this era have stood out as being mm. some of the best. I know we've already name-checked, you know, Rosa and Demons of a Punjab. And it's when I sort of think of this era, I think it's actually something on a personal level for me, well, I don't know everyone do this, you know, in the Davies era, I find the contemporary stories always stand out as the odd one in there. And, you know, I'm not saying that's a hard and fast rule, but the contemporary stories were set. And then in the Moffat era, it's often the more experimental stories not necessarily future but the more science fiction heavy stories mm. and then for me Chibnall's era is defined by the quality of the historicals and I think we got that right mm. from the first series you know um which finders mm. as well is you know mm. amazing it's become a real favorite for me especially after the target novelization and I really I enjoyed that, that novel yeah and mm. I think that continues on with um Maxine Alderton's two stories as well you know she's been I think noticed by a lot of people as one of the strongest contributors from this two episode, her two episodes that she's done in the series. You know, a really standout Doctor Who writer who I think a lot of people would like to see more of in the future. And again, both of her stories were um, historical. It's interesting, given the the really good feedback and the plaudits that he got for those in season eleven, that he didn't really, other than um, sort of War of the Santarons, he didn't really. Uh, sort of mine that seam anymore, did he? Um, you know, as much in, in, in season 12. Yeah, I mean, there's Nikola Tesla's Night of Terror, which I think is, um, you know, strong yeah, story. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, it's interesting that, and again, it maybe comes around to, we're trying to talk about the strengths of Chibnall here, but maybe this is more of a strength in terms of recruitment and kind of running the show than it is a writing strength because, as you say, War of the Sometimes is one he wrote himself and obviously he co-wrote um, Rosa and some of the others we've mentioned, but on the whole, we are talking about stories written by other people within his era, which is obviously different to if I'm talking about liking the contemporary stories in the RTD era, that is mostly stories written by Russell T. Davies himself. And that's clearly a conscious choice on Chibnall's part, right? You know, he, he goes to, you know, he wants to do a story about Rosa Parks. He gets Mallory Blackman to write it so that he's not, you know, got himself a white man doing it. It's um, he gets some um, Vinay Patel to do the story about the partition, and you know, again, that's you know, it's you know, um, yeah, following the you know, sensible in my opinion logic of um, get some um, minorities to tell stories about minorities so that you mm. get you know, a bit more you know, authenticity, and um, I think it really pays off a lot in those stories. Witchfinders too. He gets Joy Wilkinson to write about the witch trials, 
Um, you know, and obviously it's not a hard and fast rule. You know, he he tells the story. He tell he um does the historical about well, not about Mary Seacole to the same degree, but you know that's a Chibnall episode, uh, and it's one of my favourites of the era. If I you know had to pick um a favourite, that would be one of them for um several reasons. Just to focus on Chibnall's writing itself, at the moment it's um a lot of fun for you know i think it does realize mary seacole quite nicely um i talked a lot about it um when i did the podcast on that episode it was um i was very happy that it was one i'd liked and i could be um you know enthusiastic and positive i remember um on the recording but um you know it's um yeah there's especially i think it's just an episode that really I think it really nails the Santarans, probably the best since the Time Warrior, which I've been re-watching recently. I'm in the middle of, and uh, it's yeah, such a great fun story. But, um, you know, I think that's probably the best story the Santarans have had since then, probably, in that it just gets how to make them funny and scary at the same time and, you know, to really tell a story about them as monsters and what they about the things they represent. So, you know, it's, um, yeah, that's um yeah that one's i think one of my favorites of his i think he's really you know he's um he's good at having fun with the daleks i don't think any of his dalek specials are like um you know best dalek story ever or anything but he gets how to just have fun with them as monsters and Mm -hmm. that's you know a good time you know um you know whether you've got the um dalek blasting down all this and um blasting down all the soldiers in um resolution and it's you know it's not you know i don't think it's making the dalek scary again quote unquote it's it's you know it's whiz bang we you know that's that's the th- that's the thing i'm thinking when i'm watching that scene not oh gosh i'm so scared of this dalek but that's that's so much fun too you know um sometimes the daleks can just be fun um you know and i think woman who fell to earth is just a terrific way to kick off the era too you know it's um it really um establishes the characters and sells you on them pretty well um you know my thoughts about his flaws will come in a bit later but yeah mm. if i had to pick some scripts and those aren't the only ones that i enjoyed those are ones that immediately jumped to mind as showing off some of his strengths i think he plays really good homage to some some of the classic um creatures like you say the Sontarans. i mean the the sea devils look beautiful i not necessarily enjoy the overall episode, but they look so good. You know, when as soon as that trailer aired, it was like, oh my god, it's like the 1970s. And and he's done similar with the Sontarans. He's brought, he's kind of stepped away from the Dan Starkey comedy Sontaran to bring back a little bit more ruthlessness and that sort of grubby, you know. Um, alien menace from from the sort of Tom Baker time. So I think he, he's 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 uh, you know the beginning he was like I'm not bringing back any characters, but then I think what he's done is he has brought them back in in interesting ways. I think for me, the Chibnall strength is where is more in the sort of production and the show running. I think what he very clearly set out to do. And time will judge him on whether or not he did this. But what he set out to do was was almost like a reset of the program to say, okay, let's let's take away all the stuff that people are expecting. Let's start with some some storytelling. And, and more crucially, is he 
really tightened up on the sort of spoilers that were coming out and you know he he was there was a lot you know previously in Russell T Davis and, and, and Moffat era where everything was leaked okay <laughs> you knew who was going to be in the story it was probably in Doctor Who magazine and I know that some people some fans took umbrage to this that he was not doing set reports he was not doing you know big reveals um but I think to begin with it was really good and you get the payoff in things like Fugitive of the Jadoon, which was just like, it was like a wow moment. And, and I think that is a, a strength that that he was able to do that. He was able to pull off things like that. I mean, don't, don't get me wrong. Um, Russell T. Davis did it with the fake tenant regeneration where everyone was sat there for a week going, oh, who's going to be the new doctor? But I think that he... As he he was wanting to bring back that mystery of not always knowing what was coming up so that when something came up, it was a nice surprise. It was like, oh, I wasn't expecting this. I do think Fugitive of the Jadoon is, I mean, and it's great fun as well, just great reveal for Joe Martin's Doctor. There's another strength of the era right there. Um, you know, but... Um, She's yeah wonderful in the role, and you know just great casting choice on you know Chibnall and Andy Pryor's parts. Um, but um, and, you know universally popular for good reason. But um, the yeah you know the episode itself, and I'm not the first person to say that. I mean Chibnall's said it. You know um, friends of mine have said this before, so I'm just stealing from them really. But um, you know they um. That um, you know, the cleverness of Fugitive of the Jadoon is the way it, you know, hides, you know, um Ruth Doctor in plain sight just by um kind of building up to, you know, just um starting with, okay, this is a Jadoon episode. The Jadoon are back. This is exciting. Yeah. Then um, but then, you know, out of nowhere, Captain Jack's back. And um, you know, I have my issues with that for several reasons. Um mm-hmm. You know, both on a plot level and I don't like John Barrowman anymore level, but on a um, just on a like, okay, good, you know, smart production. Yeah, it's like he's back. This this is the big surprise we were holding up for you guys, and so your your attention's on him now. And then um, and then you know, suddenly you get bam, the Doctor's unearthed the TARDIS, and now there's a new Doctor stepping out to meet her. Um, you know, what, what on earth is going on here? That's what makes it such a, you know, well-deployed twist in many ways, you know. And that was a proper moment. And mm. and here is where, well, I said about accidental. One of the things that, another strength that I would take from the Chibnall era is he's proved that a female Doctor can work. But it wasn't Jodie in so much as within five seconds of Joe Martin's Doctor being on screen, it was the Doctor. You know, that moment where she looks up and she says, let me take it from the top. She embodies the Doctor in those first five seconds beautifully. And I I felt personally... It took Jodie a long time to embody the Doctor. And you really see it by the time you get to Power of the Doctor. It's probably my favourite Jodie performance. And same for Mandip, actually. But I, I felt that it took a while for for me to really sort of go, that's the Doctor. Um, but with Joe Martin's Doctor, 
it was instant. It was like, oh my god, she she's in control of everything that's that's going on around her. She she just brought so much power to that character, and you remember her, but she's not in it for very long. You know, and and she makes little cameos in other episodes. And you're right, um, Andrew. Did you, it's a real fan favorite. You know, she's she's really. Um, in a very, very, very quickly, become really, really popular as a, as, a, as a doctor. Even though it's, you know, she's not going around series or anything else. She just pops up mm-hmm. in a series of flashbacks or mind trips, and you know, in reflections. Mm-hmm. But she's such a strong doctor, and I think that that's the thing that I would take away from from Chibnall's era is that he's proved that it it works. You know, Jodie got there, Jay Martin got there instantly um yeah i'll absolutely jump in on praise for you know joe martin as the doctor she is absolutely brilliant and i think it you know it does actually help in terms of performance that she's able to go in without the same baggage that jodie wick has got having to play the lead role in the show and having to be the first woman to play the doctor and having to go in with all the usual regeneration amnesia and confusion that she's got to be playing all of that and playing a character who's finding herself and in some ways it does feel like Chibnall stretches that out for longer than um, the writers usually do in terms of references to her um, change of gender in particular going right throughout that first series of hers, which is maybe just a decision that's been made to kind of acknowledge the significance of a change of gender, but in some ways it does hinder what Jodie's able to do um, at times. Um, but yeah, absolutely, Joe Martin, without the baggage, is able to kind of seize a role and run with it and leave such... An impression and I do think it's obviously a shame then that it could sort of feel like the rest of this era has kind of squandered her you know it's it's brought her in for limited very limited cameo performances and every single one of those I think is a great sort of punch the air moment especially you know I think the more surprising ones like in the middle of flux and in the power of doctor I think people were expecting her to be in the time was told and were disappointed because she wasn't in it that much but the other two even though it is still quite short it's enough of a surprise that it really brings you in and I think that feels to me like one of the elements of the Chibnall era outside of the main characters that's going to have a real impact on you know the Doctor Who expanded universe but people are going to want to be playing with that for years to come you know I mean I Mm. literally just got as a birthday present her first comic collection for Fugitive Doctor and Mm. I've been reading through that and um, I know she's got audio dramas coming up and that feels like you know because Mm. when you get a character like that when you get a performance like Joe Martin's that's not something that Doctor Who fans are going to want to let go of anytime soon. Yeah, I always feel like they 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 represent uh, sort of two two types of Doctor, where um, mm. sort of Jodie Whittaker is the sort of like on, influencing things from the sidelines, a bit maybe sort of like Troughton or McCoy, um, and then Joe Martin is the sort of front and centre, big kind of bombastic Doctors like Pertwee or the Bakers. Um, so it's sort of just the two constricting styles, but it probably is easier, like you say, for Joe Martin to make a big impact by being, you know, coming in and being like, I'm the doctor like that, you know, in in the way that, uh, you know, like Tom Baker or somebody would, I suppose. I am, um, I'm, you know, very much of the opinion that I, you know, think I was sold on Jody from the, start i think that's another of the strengths of the era was the decision to cast her and you know a lot of the time her performance i don't think you know 
She's never an actor who I felt phoned it in. And you've, I've seen, you know, you've seen enough, uh, once you've watched enough Tom Baker Williams era stories, um, <laughs> I feel like, you know, what that looks like, a doctor phoning it in or, um, you know, kind of doing a bit for the camera. Um, you know, it's, um, you know, I feel like she's always putting thought into her performance. And that's, you know, a thing that I've come to value with doctors. It's a thing I value when I watch Peter Davison, for example, another doctor who isn't quite so, um, yeah, who isn't quite so immediately screen grabbing, but, you know, he always just does little things that surprise and delight you, I think, um, you know. Um, but yeah, I had to, you know, yeah, pinpoint the moment I was sold on her as the doctor. It's the moment where she says, hello, I'm the doctor. Um, you know, she finally has that moment in The Woman Who Fell to Earth. You know, I think that's it. I think that moment is pretty well done and built up to, um, you know, or, you know, you know, any any moment where Julie just does a little disappointed um, scrunch when she, um, I think, when she asks Yaz if she can have the uh, sirens on, or um, you know, um, where she, you know, she, you know, there's tons of great Doctor moments I could pinpoint in that story. You know, um, where she, you know, uh, just tears all the data from Ryan's phone. And he goes, "Wait, all my stuff's on there," and she's like, "Not anymore," and just zaps herself. You know, it's um, you know, with that just mad, um, mad glint in her eyes. You know, she, um, you know, I think she gets that side of the role um you know or like you know i think um you know that thing especially in the first season what i felt was that they had the kid gloves on with her a bit too much a lot of the time with the writing um where they were playing it safe a lot of the time with like a few exceptions um you know there's moments in that season where she definitely shines um like i think the scene in um Rosa in there's a scene in Rosa where she goads Crasco into strangling her um or trying to strangle her to prove that he can't actually hurt her because you know because she's already deduced that he's um got a chip in his head um that stops him doing that um and you know that's and you know she does that to like lord it over him and that's just a great you know slightly um dangerous doctor moment you know so our um you know um Similar scenes, you know, I think of um, the Witch Finders, which actually puts her doctor through the ringer a bit as she goes through a time that isn't, you know, as, you know, she has to deal with, um, you know, being a woman in, um, for the first, well, well, no, no, it wasn't for the first time, but, you know, um, <laughs> seemingly for the first time in a while, you know, being a woman in, um, you know, a period of history that was not kind to women. And, um you know, she's, um, and she gets to spar off, you know, Alan Cumming in particular, and that's really, really good for her as well. You know, um, yeah, playing off him really brings out the best in Jodie's performance as well when they get a face-to-face -face scene or, um, you know, and, you know, she kind of, um, challenges his worldview and, you know, is desperately trying to get through to him and change his, you know, mind, you know, it's just, you know, um, I think she needed more stuff like that. You know, there's other stories that do fun stuff with her as well, or like, you know, it takes you away where she breaks up with a sentient universe. Um, you know, it's the frog on a chair and she's telling it that it's the most wonderful thing she's ever seen. Feels like the first thing that's really crafted for her doctor, um, in a way. And that's, you know, that's some wonderful stuff that like, yeah, there was just, yeah, I think there's a bit too much of trying to play her off just play we need a new likable doctor we need people to like this first female doctor and we need people to like this doctor that isn't peter poldy who was maybe perceived as um a bit you know one of my personal favorites as you know who was maybe perceived as grouchy or um you know too old too severe whatever you know they wanted to make her more user-friendly and as such 
you know, made and the I, character. And I think, and I think yeah. to an extent, sorry, I think to an extent that did work because there are now, you know, I was at uh, mm. Comic-Con last year when she did her first appearance in, in London and the number of people dressed in the Jodie mm. outfit, you know, young boys, young girls, you know, really inspired a brand new audience, which I think is 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 great. And maybe they needed a little bit more user-friendly doctor to do that. I think that, for me, I wanted a little bit more light and dark in Jodie's mm. performance because season her first season... She's like an excited Labrador, which is great. You know, don't get me wrong. She She's brilliant and she's all energetic and, you know, witty and sparking off people. But the things that they throw at her, especially toward, you know, later on where it's like the master has destroyed the, the planet, she's mm. discovered she's not who she thought she was. She effectively saw her adopted parent killed in front of her. All of these things, you know, quite dark things. And, and I wanted to see a little bit, you know, I, I, one thing I particularly like about Tennant and Smith, actually, um, uh, Matt Smith, is is that turn to the dark side when you just, you just see a flash of it. You just, uh, you know, that mm. yeah, actually this is an all-powerful alien who can pretty much do what they want if they if their mind was so inclined and I, and I don't really see that much with with Jodie. She ha, she as a, as her performance goes on. And don't get me wrong, this is not a knock on Jodie because she's a, mm. a, a fantastic actress. I think the writing didn't take her there. I think there was mm. moments okay. where I was like, oh, I expect this will happen, and it and it didn't because I, either they were being too gentle, um, or or they just didn't want maybe Jodie's character to be that dark, you know, to go to that place. But I think by the time, you know, when we get to Power of the Doctor, it is, you feel Jodie, you know, um, the Doctor knows that time is almost up and, is, you know, there's a lot more emotion going on in there and a lot sort of, you know, I can, I might still be able to save the day and, not have to regenerate and you know in in the end it's a nice release you know she sort of says tag your it and she mm. she hands over but there's more of a sense of peril in that story than there is in some of the others um and I, and I just think that's where there's obviously been a creative decision around what what this doctor's like and it's interesting you mentioned peter davison because a lot of people say that caves his last episode is where you get to see peter davison as the doctor and i personally at the moment feel that's what power of the doctor is like as you get to see jody and 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 when jody regenerates it's like i i feel sad because i'm like i want another season of jody like this you know in full you know, power of the do doctor, you know, in, in full sort of like strength. Um, it's a, it, it's a sad moment when she regenerates. Yeah. And, and Jodie is such an excellent performer and the doctor is such a great part that it's best can allow you to play so many aspects mm. of emotion. And it's a shame that some of those aspects Jodie has got to play less often than some of the predecessors. Yeah. And, whether there is a gendered mm. element to the way that's being written, you know, that she's not allowed to be as 
directly confrontational or as directly um, kind of abrasive and, and, and taking control in the way that's kind of accepted more with male doctors. I don't know if there is an element of that. Mm. And when she does kind of, she has these great flickers of it. You know, I think uh, one moment that gets highlighted a lot, um, again, from um, the excellent Maxine Alderson is in the Horning of the Diodati episode, her mm. kind of reaction to Ryan's suggestion that they could just let Percy die. There's a real fierceness there. It's not just her teaching a moral lesson. It's her kind of almost lashing out. And that is such a great... It shows Joey's performance so well, and it's a shame to not have more moments or even a longer arc, because I think it's when those moments do occur, mm. they're so brief that you don't really get to explore that and explore how the companions react to her being like that. But, I mean, she's, you know... A brilliant performer, brilliant casting. I think this era has had amazing casting. I mean, again, that's you know that's Andy Pryor who has been casting yeah. Doctor Who since two thousand five now. But you know, I mean, if I just thinking about the sort of off-screen chemistry of Jodie and Mandip, it would be so easy. Like that, that is clearly amazing. You know, it feels like they are going to be best friends. You know, they're going to be friends for life in the same way that you know Sylvester McCoy and Sophie Aldred or. Colin Baker mm. and Nicola Bryant, or you can absolutely picture them at conventions in 40 years' time just kind of having mm. banter with each other. And, you know, you want to be like, oh, well, it's kind of luck because you don't know when you hire actors whether they're going to go on that way. And yet Andy Pryor has done such brilliant, you know, casting over the last um, 17 years that you've got to say it's more than luck. You've got to say it's, you know, it's his job and mm. he does that and he consistently finds actors yeah. to play the lead character in the show that bounce off each other in really amazing ways and actually do feel form real life bonds and you know the same with the casting of the master in this era mm. the moment Sasha Dewan appeared on screen in Doctor Who before yeah. you know 45 minutes before we found out he was playing the master um I was like oh yeah we get to see Sasha Dewan on the screen he's an amazing actor he's an actor I really like mm. and he plays that initial O persona before he's ruled the roster so well and so charmingly but you're almost already kind of rooting for this character to be you know a recurring character some mm. person on earth that the doctor can get back in touch with every so often and you're like oh i like this dynamic i like this and so when it's revealed to the master you get that moment of going oh we're going to see a lot more of this actor sasha duan but also kind of an almost genuine mm. grief of kind of like, oh, I quite liked that charming yeah. kind of bumbling character who was a bit yeah. fanish towards the Doctor he was playing. And now that's gone, which I think is why, as much as mm. the exact mechanics of that um, reveal with the sort of reference to him being a champion sprinter and maybe slightly fudged in the writing, mm. it is a brilliant kind of era-defining moment of just getting to see another great actor be born on board to play an iconic part. And I'll just um, go back to something you said earlier on, Mark, about the diversity in the show. And uh, I'm going to do a horrendous name job now. But um, I interviewed Sophie Aldred recently at one of the Phantom mm. events. Uh, and obviously we were talking about Power of the Doctor. And, and she made two points, which actually mm. both got people standing on their feet clapping. Uh, and it was around... In Power of the Doctor, there are, there are mm. two really significant things firstly the scenes with uh, mandip and sasha there are no the, everybody on screen is a person of color hmm. which is very unusual for 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 hmm. bbc mainstream programs and then there is a scene when they're doing the graham's gang 
where there is um, obviously you've got Sophie, you've got Janet, you've got Katie Manning, you've got Bonnie Langford, uh, you've got um, I can't remember her name who plays Kate Stewart. All women over fifty as well, mm. which again is something that you don't normally see a scene like that in a BBC primetime TV show. And she was saying that it, you know those are kind of stuff, some of the conscious decisions that have been made behind the scenes to promote that, to promote, you know, in Power of the Doctor, you've got Tegan and Ace who, you know, are the main characters in that. You know, it's not just a cameo. You know, they're in it throughout. And it's that portrayal of more powerful women, of the diversity as well, which I think has been... I I know people go, well, it's woke, but actually it's not. It's it's about... Thing, you know, real life, and I, and I and I think that's a good thing, and I, I and I do applaud those kind of decisions that have been made. You you mentioning that um, Sasha and Mandit moment as well, actually, kind of almost to go further than that. I know Joe Martin, you know, put on her Twitter and on her Instagram about how the scene where it's Joe Martin, Sasha Dwan, Mandit Girl, and Jacob Anderson all there together in that scene, and that's really that yep. just takes that moment even further, and that's yeah, that's what I kind of want to see as the Doctor, doctor. the Master, and the Companions. You know, that's yeah, yeah it's that's just great. You know, um, mm-hmm. no, it's it's you know wonderful watching that episode, and there's like really long sections that are, you know it's not just you know scenes; it's there's really long sections of the story that are just you know where the plot's being driven by. The Doctor by um, Yaz, by um, Tegan and Ace, by, you know, um, Kate and, by, you know, those are, you know, those are the major players in the story. Mm. You know, it's all, all women and, you know, moving it along. You know, there were there were moments in, you know, the Capaldi era where you had that obviously like, you know, the Ross Davis era was already pushing diversity as much as it could in 2005 to 2009 as well. So it's not completely new to Doctor Who either. That's not, you know, downplaying Chimnall. That's just pointing out to people who will, you know, complain about a woke agenda in this era. It's just taking what those guys did and pushing it further. And that's a good thing, you know? Um, Yeah. I think from that perspective where I've really appreciated it, you know, that, you know, in front of the camera is great. Getting more diverse actors and getting first female doctor in is great. You know, Um, you know, the, um, you know, but, you know, it's the behind the camera stuff is what I think is really important as well. Cause there have been a dearth of female writers in previous eras, skin like, um, and there've been a dearth of, well, <laughs> I think Mallory Blackman is, you know, to the best of my knowledge, the first, you know, minority ethnic writer for the show ever in over 50 years at the time, you know, she, you know, wrote for it, you know, Vinay Patel was the second, you know, that's, you know, that's shameful, but it's, you know, it's good that it's finally happened in this era and it's happened multiple times as well. I think was Charlene James also, um, another one, um, you know, you've got, um, Mark Tonderai directing a couple of episodes in series 11. You've got, um, you know, Sally Abrahamian, um, as a female director, you've got, um, yeah, a bunch of others, you know, you've had Wayne Yip doing, um, revolution of the, um, no, not revolution resolution. Um, you know, so, and yeah, don't need to list all of them, but mm. to make the points, you know, that's because there's actually plenty you can list. I'm not just, you know, listing two or three writers or, yeah. you know, one or two directors. It's just there through the whole era now. You know, you can 
you know, point to all of the guest writers brought in. And actually, for once, I think around half, maybe more than half. I can't, yeah, I haven't got the numbers to hand, but yeah, you've actually got about half a women, you know? It's fucking finally, you know? Um, It's, um, you know, you've actually got multiple writers of color in there. That's good, you know? Um, You know, there's very few just i think chris chibnall and ed heim are the only straight white male to the best of my knowledge writers on the era which is you know yeah that's Mm. that's good that's progress and i think it says something about where these writers how these writers are being recruited and where they're being found Mm. by the production team as well and again it's an interesting comparison to make with the previous eras you know a lot of rtd era writers are being recruited from people who were involved in Doctor Who during the 90s and some capacity, you know, it's, it's, it's V&A era writers and the V&As, despite having some amazing um, women authors in there, notably neither of which get to write Doctor Who on television, mm. um, it is, that's predominantly pulling more white men into the show. And then Moffat, especially in the, the Smith era, you know, there's a big push for these kind of celebrity writers, people like mm. um, Neil Gaiman and Richard Curtis. And again, because the people who were at the top level of the industry in terms of writing are predominantly white men that kind of style mm. of recruitment brings in more of that and yet where chibnall's been recruiting from you know it's from soaps it's from playwrights you mm. know it's um so many of these writers have had um you know very people who aren't that well known necessarily and mm. the same is true in the directors you know and people being brought in from short films and i think that is a great way to recruit new talent that can genuinely bring something fresh both in terms of diversity and just in terms of themselves and the ideas they have i I think it'd be really interesting to compare Mm. the average age of the directors in particular of this era to the sort of average age of the directors of um previous eras and obviously that's no discredit to people like graham harper and rachel Mm. towler who are phenomenal directors um but Mm. they are people who've been around in the industry for a long time and it's kind of i like Mm. the idea of doctor who being somewhere that kind of new fresh face people can get a chance and that, that can help them to go on to get other jobs i mean mm. the director of nikola tesla's night of terror and fugitive of june went on to write and direct we are lady parts which was you know a huge success for channel four mm. in a second series brilliant show and you know that's the sort of stories we should have it shouldn't be writers saying oh this writer's been just about to do doctor who and they've written this amazing thing in the past it should be what amazing thing are they going to write in three or four years' time? That's what I want to see. And it's, and it's notable as well. They did get, you know, like, Mac, um, ah, what am I saying? Mallory Blackman, you know, is a pretty good celebrity yeah, guy as true. well. You know, it's not like, you know, they weren't drawing in exciting talent, but also, yeah, they were drawing in new talent as well because that's the thing you can do. And, yeah, again, that is the thing that the Moffat era was starting to do towards the end. Nice. You know, I think Moffat realised when he realized he was coming in for criticism for the lack of female writers, he realized, oh, wait, there's something to that. Let's maybe start looking for Sarah Dollard, who hasn't had as experience on as big as shows. Writers like her and Jamie Matheson, who is a white man. But, you know, <laughs> if you look in those areas, you're going to get more diverse stuff. But it, point, it is interesting know? how that for Moffat is still kind of recruiting from other from, kind of sci-fi things. You know, Jamie Matheson is yeah. known for being human. Whereas when you look at you know, Joy Wilkinson's previous work before mm. Doctor Who was a stage play about female boxers in the Victorian era. Mm. Charlie James, yes. I believe, wrote a stage play about female genital mutilation. You know, mm. Vinay Patel wrote about honour killing in a, a mm. very 
you know, popular standard off low TV series. These are really interesting places to be recruiting Doctor Who writers from because they're not mm. obvious and yet it obviously works. And it's, yeah. you know, I think it just goes to show that Doctor Who can kind of use the best and brightest talent and that we should be looking at these places. Yeah, like okay. there's, I've seen, sorry, I was quickly, um, yeah, there's like, I've seen some people say that, oh, the writers aren't experienced enough in writing TV yeah. or sci-fi. And I'm just like, bullshit. <laughs> frankly sorry i i will keep the language up for this one it's like you know just no like don't don't watch you know don't watch demons of the punjab and tell me that diverse hiring doesn't work you know don't watch the haunting of villa diodati and tell or nikola tesla's night of terror and tell me that diverse hiring doesn't work you know again i'm not going to list every episode by every writer but for god's sake you know, I think they've more than just, you know, like the guest writers on this era who Chibnall chose and did a good job finding, you know, like have more than justified their place and justified actually finding diverse writers. I do, for the record, trust Russell C. Davis to continue this work because, you know, he's very much the type of um, creative who does push for those more of that sort of thing. But, you know, it's, um yeah, like... <laughs> It's nonsense, I think, to say that it doesn't work or it couldn't work, and because it did in this era very well. Speaking of it like that, it, it reminds me of, of Andrew Cartmel in season twenty-five and twenty-six as well. Isn't yeah. it? He's he's giving people a chance. You know, like, uh, talking about playwrights, like Ronan Monroe was a playwright. Uh, mm. You know, he's, he's he's giving people a chance to to kickstart the careers by being on Doctor Who, and you are getting you know, more diverse and different voices from that as well. Do you think there is a Cartmore um, influence here? Because we, you know, we know from from accounts that they were going to be taking the Doctor into a new direction. There was lots of hints that the Doctor was more than just a Time Lord. <laughs> and, you know, some of those bits were edited out or some of them were sort of left in as cryptic clues. Yeah. And now we have got this, the, the, you know, the the timeless child part where it's revealed that maybe the doctor isn't just an ordinary time Lord. I, I, having sort of grown up watching the Sylvester stories, this to me feels like the master plan has, 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 mm. has reemerged, you know, 30 years later and, it, and is now a thing. Yeah. I, um... I, I love how well that this era kind of fits the reveals of this era do actually fit with those kind of line illusions. I love that you could watch Doctor Who as a big, long story and think, oh, that stuff that was in that McCoy story was never really paid <laughs> off. And then, you know, several <laughs> weeks, months of watching later, be like, hang a second, you know, it, it does work well in that regard. And Oh, that's what was going on with those Morbius Doctors. Yeah, and I think yeah. it, it does speak to Chibnall kind of being, feeling more of a child of 80s Doctor Who than mm. Davies or Moffat. It's not that he's that much younger necessarily. I'm not quite mm. sure what the exact difference is, but just in terms of his influences, it feels very 80s. You know, people have made a lot of comparisons, both sort of superficial in terms of appearance, but I think quite genuine between Whitaker and Davison. And then, mm. you know, I think um, that element as well of kind of adding more mystery back to the Doctor feels very like that. And then, you know, the power of a Doctor is a, a massive tribute to 80s Doctor Who. You know, it puts mm. Ace and Tegan um, in big central roles. It allows them to kind of have, you know, three, four decade delayed resolutions to their 
arcs with their own doctors on screen, mm. you know, it feels like Shivner really has an unabashed love for that era, which, well, I mean, maybe it was a slightly abashed love in series 11 where he is trying to play down the fanish credentials of the show, but he really l- lets rip with it by the end. So, yeah. It does, but this is where I, I said about some of his strengths were also his weaknesses. And I, and I think mm. for me, what Chibnall has, has done is is almost shrink the show back because if you th- some of the stuff that he was um, you know keeping to himself, I think the thing about Doctor Who there was long periods where it wasn't on, and you want to keep the buzz going, you want to keep people talking about it, and you can see it right now with Russell T Davis and how every so often there's a new little bit of you know, information about the new series that's coming out and uh, and the casting and, and things. And I, and I felt that Chibnall, with his secrecy and wanting to keep everything really tight, has actually shrunk that back that you know the 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 franchise itself is is probably smaller now than it than it was. And when you had something like Flux and we talked about jumping on moments there really wasn't a point where a casual viewer could jump on board with Flux because yeah. if you joined from episode two onwards, nothing would make sense to you at all. That you know, the, Whereas with the sort of standalone stories in like uh, his first season, you could join in because you know you got a little bit of, you know, I'm the Doctor and blah, 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 blah. But by the time we got to the end of the Chibnall era, it was kind of like, right, if you're... If you know, you know. If you don't know, it's going to make no sense to you whatsoever. You're going to sit there and go, "What's going on?" Yeah, and I think that was yeah. that was the weakness side of it. Yeah, can you hear me? I think was the last episode of the era to not feature any like major returning elements in terms of like classic monsters coming back, big lore reveals, um, major returning characters, all of the above in one episode. You know, it's... Yeah. Um, and it's also the last episode that's not sort of mm. written by Chip. Well, um, by the episode after that, sorry, is the last one not written by Chibnall. But like he... Yeah. Partly, you know, entirely because of COVID concerns on a, a large extent, you know, he mm. writes an awful lot of the tail ends of his era with a couple of co-writes scattered in there. But, you know, we've been talking about how great the recruitment was for writers in series 11 and 12, and it's a shame we didn't get to see a third Mm. wave of that just because of the nature of what happened with the world and with production. Absolutely. Um, Yeah, so so to move on to that, um, Chris Chibnall is the outgoing showrunner but he's probably the least outgoing showrunner that we've had um, in terms of... Uh, I was quite pleased with that. <laughs> You've been waiting. You, you've had that stored, haven't you? Um, yeah, in terms of the, the access that he's, he's, he's given to us, which is sort of quite a stark contrast with the amount of access with the production notes and things that we've got from Russell T. Davis and Stephen Moffat, um, and to some extent, we've kind of really got used to that, I suppose, because we've also had years of, retrospectively, um, DVD extras with the classic series uh, creatives and things like that, of, of knowing why they made these decisions and why they, why they thought things as well. So in what terms, do you, in what, to what extent do you think that is maybe a weakness and, and has harmed the show? And we touched on that a little bit there. But, um. I think it is a weakness of the wider brand of the show. I think I can see from Chibnall's perspective, why is a personal decision? You know, it, it, it is like there's 
there's no part of the showrunner job that says you also have to be, you know, a press secretary, a marketing person. And it's sort of clear that Chibnall is probably a lot less comfortable. But he's less um, quippy in his real life persona. You know, Davies and Moffat, every other thing that they say is a joke. And then mm. following a joke, there's some, you know, profound truth about the world. You know, like they're very good at talking there. Um, I mean, you know, Davies used to be an actor on an amateur level, but clearly greatly enjoys that. And Moffat is just just a funny guy. And, mm. you know, Chibnall, it might be, you know, a level of self-awareness, but he doesn't talk in that way. He might think, well, I don't want to put myself in Doctor Who magazine every single month if I'm going to not be able to provide the mm. same level of, of humour and entertainment. So, and, you know, I think that uh, as a writer is his decision to make. And it's clear that, show running Doctor Who is a very demanding job and I guess he's chosen to prioritise the bits of it um, that he's chosen to prioritise, which, you know, it makes sense to focus on the writing rather than press side of it. And mm. it's clear that Davies and even from some sort of Moffat, but, you know, particularly Davies, if you've ever read The Writer's Tale, that he absolutely burns himself out again and again for mm. the job. And, you know, I think it's an unrealistic expectation to want every Doctor Who showrunner to do that. I think it's you know, I think Davies is the sort of person where I don't think you're going to stop him doing that. But Chibnall choosing not to is his yeah. decision. But also, I think there is an extent to which it does weaken the brand because, you know, going into the Whitaker era, I was a Doctor Who magazine subscriber from, you know, a point in the Moffat era where I'd got enough disposable income to be a magazine subscriber. Mm -hmm. And I did ultimately end up ending that subscription. And it's not that the only content I go to Doctor Who magazine for is that sort of content but i think it's often it can be the headline that pulls you in there and already now with the sort of promises that davies made in the most recent doctor Who magazine for the level of content he's expecting to bring to it especially in the next you know 12 months without an episode it's already making me thinking well maybe i need to pick up that subscription again and that same pull isn't there mm. in the chibnall era and it's again i don't think it's a requirement of a job and yet davies obviously believes it's an important part of the promotion of a show and just, you know, he feels obliged clearly to help Doctor Who magazine and help them be profitable. I'm sure that will work. I'm sure Doctor Who magazine will become more yeah. profitable. I think the moment that stands out for me and sort of summarises how I feel about this is when he went to America, he went to, I don't know whether it was San Diego Comic-Con or one of the big Comic-Cons in America, and he took Jodie, took Mandip and... Um, he took, I think it was, um, oh, uh, what's his name? The place Graham. Bradley um, Walsh. Yeah, Bradley Walsh. They went to do the promo for the new season. So it was after Ryan had left. And he was like, I've got a trailer for you. And the trailer didn't show a single alien or baddie. It was the four main characters all going, oh, look at that. And that was pretty much it. And it was it was under a minute long. And when you've got that kind of audience, you know, it was being streamed live. There was people in the UK eager, you know, and this is what I mean, that his strength is also his weakness. They were eager for any kind of tidbit about what was coming up in the new season. And they basically got Jodie waving her Sonic around for a few seconds and then reaction faces from the companions. Mm. And people were just sat there going... Is that it? And, and I think that that is the, the how he has unfortunately 
you know, by trying to preserve the secrecy of the the show and to keep those surprises, people were like, well, it's, it's another six months until this shows and I'm I'm not really that bothered. You know, I don't know anything. It's not it's not given me. I mean, showing Ace and Tegan at the end of um, the Sea Devils was like an immediate like, oh my god, I cannot wait now till the next episode. You know, that's the the, the contrast between that and the trailer he showed. Even there, there's an element of. Ace and Tegan, that's exciting for fans. That's exciting for us. Mm. What about the general audience? What about yeah. the people who, you know, like, you know, what about my brother who has never seen classic Who um, and who does <laughs> <Those ladies. laughs> have a clue who Tegan and Ace are? You know, um, you know, what about, you know, what about, you know, what about Yanan who's watching? What about, you know, if, you know, mm. can, is that going to excite, you know, you know, um, get her to tune in, or um, you know, if your nan was watching Legend of the Sea Devils, to be fair, um, it's um, but you know, there's you know, there's that element, and I can't remember what other big hooks there were in that trailer. I can't remember if they had a Cybermen shot in there. I think maybe it does I think... also drop Daleks, yeah. Cybermen, Daleks, Cybermen. and the Master. Yeah. To be fair, so it's yeah. doing no, it does. yeah, this one no, this one does pull that. To be fair, but yeah. But yes, there's there's an element of um, yeah. I think relying on you know the old thing. You know, look, there's this old thing you know before is coming back, and that's good. But what's what's the hook for the story? You know, because there's, I mean, there is a hook for the story in Power of the Doctor. There's some pretty big ones, but you know, I think there's also an element of that as well that Jim Nall, you know, is sometimes afraid to give away a premise as if that's a spoiler. Yeah. I think, mm-hmm. and that's more of a problem. You know, um, you know, I, I want to be surprised by the talking sentient frog universe. So yeah, sure, don't <laughs> spoil that. I want to be surprised by, um, you know, Ruth Doctor. So yeah, don't spoil that. I want to be surprised by the reveal of Sasha's master. So yeah, don't spoil that. But there's a lot of things you can tease to give me an exciting trailer and give me cool premises. You know, don't just give me a list of actors. Give me, um, we've got witches and we've got Alan Cumming and as um, yeah. King James the First, you know, um, you know, um, stuff like that. So give me, we've got, spi- you know, give me, we've got spiders at, ha- um, oh no, that episode aired at Halloween. But, you know, give me, we've got spiders in um, Sheffield. You know, give me, you know, just, you know, just the basic premises that are going to get us excited for the season ahead. You know, it's. it's- yeah, because that list of actors was like, you know, coming next season on Downton Abbey, we've got <laughs> all these people. And, and they also, they spelt one of their names wrong. I remember this being a thing. Um, Hamza Jitua, who's in Demons from Punjab, got his name spelt wrong in that list as well, which um, is ridiculous. But, yeah. Give us, yeah, give us, sorry, give us the gang meets Rosa Parks. You know, that's, that's a pretty cool selling point. You know, there's lots of cool things in series 11 to sell you on it you know um you know give us a patine going Bleh, you know things adorable mm-hmm. like the russell t davis era would have marketed the heck out of the patings you know oh, there, there would have been loads been... of them in in shops yeah, where is our patine <laughs> plush toy you know yeah like gosh you know i suppose it's you know how much this has got to do with chris chibnall but one of the um the great things about this era is that that since 2018 
all of 21st Century Doctor Who has been available on the iPlayer for, for viewers in the UK for that whole time. And they ran through the classic series on Twitch twice, I think, mm-hmm. as well. Um, so, yeah, we, we, you know how much of that originates from him, I don't know. But those those have been two good things, although they're not uh, directly marketing the, the upcoming series. Uh, you know, they are, I suppose, sort of um, helping to grow the fan base. It's true that we live in an age where Doctor Who is kind of more accessible than ever, you know. Even with, you've got those Twitch runs that we've had a couple of times, which is great for free to view classic Doctor Who, but and in a way that is specifically targeted and aimed towards the younger demographic. You know, I think the average audience of Twitch is not somebody who will have grown up watching classic Doctor Who, it's fair to say. And then, you know, with the mm-hmm. BritBox, and now that being, the entire BritBox catalogue being available on ITVX as well, ITVX Premium, that is, you know, there are ways to watch classic Doctor Who that costs £6 a month as opposed to £6 per story, which, mm-hmm. you know, and inevitably that does give this show a different appeal to what it had when it felt like you could only watch a certain part of it for the kind of dedicated fans. And, you know, it's easy to think that, oh, young people won't have any interest in watching almost 900 episodes. But, you know, these same young people might be watching, you know, anime series or whatever that have been going on for dozens Mm. of years that have ridiculous long episodes. Some people love that deep dive. So it's great that that's Mm. there now. Yeah. I mean, we we had uh, Matthew Waterhouse at Pandorica and people were coming up to him to say, I've just seen Earthshock, and 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 like they they were like, oh my god, I can't believe what happened to you in that episode. And these are people that you know weren't even born when it originally <laughs> came out, but because of the Blu-rays and because you're quite right around BritBox, there's now a whole new group of people who are watching these episodes, and, and it's interesting because the episodes weren't you know never had binge watching in mind when when they first went out you know because if you, if you sit and watch a, an entire uh story there's a lot of repetition and you're like oh we, we we've covered this bit you know it's a bit of padding going on but it the, you know there are people now who are like playing catch up and are doing you know as the as the box sets come out they're watching the entire box set and then all the extras and then it's like oh it's really exciting when's the next one coming out and I, and i think that is a great thing, and I think future uh, Doctor Who is going to benefit from that because you know now now they've signed up the deal with Disney, it's going to be worldwide. You know, there's going to be much more accessibility to the classic seasons, but also all the new stuff that's being produced, which I think is great, and and I and I think that the brand will grow again. It will, you know, it's it's already growing, it's already expanding. Um, but I, I, I just I felt during this last tenure that it had it had shrunk back. You know, the, if you think about all the merchandise when it first launched in two thousand and five, you couldn't move for uh, plastic figurines of all the different you know, Doctor Who characters, uh, many of which I still have in a cupboard <laughs> in their packaging. <laughs> um, you know, now it's there's very little of that, but I, I you know. We've had a rebranding. We've got the new diamond. We're seeing new merchandise come out again, and, it, and it's it's almost like a second revival. It's really weird, but it mm. but you're seeing that brand already start to expand outwards again. I was thinking the merchandise. It's not as obvious. Like it's not in um, you know sort of Tesco and places like that. 
but mm. there is still like, way more merchandise than it's possible to afford coming out every month. Um, mm. It's just not as, I suppose, sort of mainstream and in those kind of high street shops yeah. anymore. Yes, I think there's a, it's, that's kind of, and there does feel like there maybe there's a push from merchandise aimed at children to merchandise aimed at adults. Mm. You know, back in the day, mm. when I was a child growing up in David Tennant's era, you know, you'd go into Asda and you'd beg your mum if you could buy a Slovene doll off the end aisle in Asda, which, you know, now the merchandise is, I mean, Big Finish are producing more than ever, but, you know, it, it's expensive. Mm. It's audio as a medium, doesn't always appeal mm. to younger people, you know, with attention spans and stuff. And I think what Big Finish do is great, but it's obviously a very mm. different thing. And even like, you know, there's a lot less of the character options action figures, but for a while we were getting lots of Eagle Moss, which again, you know, it feels like there's a difference there. You know, a child can't play with an Eagle Moss figure in the same way they can with a character the vinyls option as well, the, the vinyls yeah. appeal to kids, the black archive books, that kind of thing, yeah. yeah. And those stuff's all great, and, you know, it's it's convenient for me that I was a child when there was lots of stuff for children, and now when I thought there was lots of stuff for adults, but thinking about it from a, a more general point of view, you know... So, so we touched on the the timeless child a little bit. Obviously, quite a divisive um, area. Um, we, we now know from from Chibnall's interview in, in Doctor Magazine that he had this idea he wanted to tell um, an adoption myth because he himself was adopted, um, and he, he said he, he thinks you can tell stories on a bigger canvas if you're not worrying about how many doctors there are. I know in other places he's talked about sort of. Um, you know, sort of opening up the storytelling. Um, I don't know, I'm slightly dubious about that. I think Doctor's got the broadest kind of um, brief possible mm. that, they, you know, there is there is no limit to where you can go and do and any type of story you can tell. Do you, how, how successful do you think that was? And, and do you think it would have been different had COVID not struck and we had a full season 13 that, that may have explored it a bit better? I, I think, yeah, I think it, it would. It would have been better if, if the original plan was, you know, there was going to be longer, a longer story arc, what transpired with those six episodes was that you had a lot of exposition dumped into whole episodes. So you had, you know, the Halloween apocalypse, and then you had the, the Santaran one, you had the um, angels, which would have been really good stories standalone without the overarching flux story but then you've got some of those episodes which are just literally the characters on screen telling you what's been happening for you know eons uh, you know and, and the doctor's backstory and, and i i feel that it's, it's very unfortunate for chibnall that he never really got to see that he got to play that out the way he probably would have wanted to with a little bit more room to breathe and and explore it a little bit further and it feels really kind of rushed you know by the time they get to the space station and uh it's tetuine is there and azure and um is it storm they turn up and and killer and and it it i mean we never get like the explanation of what the house is that she keeps seeing you know is that lung barrow <laughs> is, it is it you know just a mess with us the fob watch is left in the TARDIS, you know, with all her memories in it, and we never go back to visit that. There's, there's, it feels like there was a lot more to give um, on that story that, that unfortunately, you know, has, has been 
pushed to one side to get to the end. Um, whether you know whether or not that, I know Russell T Davis said he wasn't against the idea of the timeless child. So whether or not that's something that will be picked up again at some point in the future uh, will be interesting to see. I know it really did divide fans. I'm not against the idea. I, I, I think it's it's an interesting way of broadening out. You know, Doctor Who's been running for sixty years. It's it's always evolved. You know, and if you go back to the early stories, you know, there are there are pivotal moments when you discover that the Doctor's only got so many regenerations, and then you know has more regenerations anyway. Um, there, there are certain things that are written into Doctor Who history. <laughs> which immediately are changed or tweaked. You know, they, all of the different showrunners have, have had their play with it. Uh, and so I, I don't begrudge um, Chibnall doing it. I guess it's where do we go from here? Because it's kind of just landed. This is, this is what's happened. But then yeah. we don't know what the, the knock-on consequences of that will be and whether or not in the new world, it pushed to one side and never talked about again. Yeah, you know, so, like the Doctor being half human in uh, in yeah. the TV movie. Let's, yeah. let's just leave that. Just leave that to one side. Yeah. And talk about so, it. yeah, I think where I stand on this, the best way I can put it is, um, likewise, I really don't begrudge Chibnall doing whatever the hell he wants with Doctor Who canon. In many ways, Doctor Who has no canon. It has three Atlantis. It has three different versions of Atlantis ending the tie. You know, it's, um, you know, it has, you know, Russell T. Davis um, destroyed Gallifrey. Moffat undestroyed it. You know, it's like people, you know, are allowed to do whatever the heck they want with this show while they're writing it. And that's a good thing. Um, you know, I'll always advocate for Tribunal's right to tell whatever story he likes with the timeless children, you know, um, canon, you know, this show isn't religion. Canon isn't insofar as it even exists, isn't the Bible, you know, um, it's not sacrilege for a showrunner to do something that, you know, to change up, you know, to retcon the show's history in any way, you know, um, you know, what I do think is, okay, if you're going to do that, what are you trying to say with it? And is it, um, an interesting story to be telling. Um, like I've seen, so, um, you know, I think with the, yeah, I, um, yeah, like I'd, the first things I'd say about like Chibnall's big law decisions, for example, like, um, destroying Gallifrey, um, like again, you know, I think was a choice. Um, you know, I think again, you know, cause it takes, you know, um, when Ross T Davis destroyed it, he did it for a very good reason, which was that he wanted to try and jettison all of the continuity so that um, everyone could be on the same page. You know, people who were coming to the show knew and classic fans who knew, thought they knew everything, um, you know, and so that, you know, the show, you know, so it was a you know fresh start for everybody, essentially. And he could slowly reintroduce the series kind of law. When Stephen Moffat brought it back, it was to kind of get rid of the... Um, kind of um, angst, the time war angst that was becoming, after it had been a really fresh thing for the show to mind, had become a bit of a crutch for the show's storytelling after seven seasons of that. And also because it was the 50th anniversary and Doctor Who deserved a celebratory story, you know, I think at that point, um, among other reasons, you know. 
Um, you know, I think those are, you know, and so that, you know, Doctor Who could evolve to start telling new stories about the Doctor and his relationship to the universe and to his own people, you know. Um, I think he explores a bit in the Capaldi era. Um, you know, Chibnall destroyed Gallifrey again, as an example. Um, and how does that impact the Doctor for the next two seasons? Um, you know, occasionally they have a mention that, you know, um, Gallifrey's destroyed now and she looks a bit sad, but it really mostly just feels like we've reset to Last of the Time Lords Doctor because that was when the show was popular. Um, and, you know, I feel like that kind of, um, you know, that's where you start to lose viewers a bit because, you know, if we're not seeing how it's impacted the Doctor losing her entire planet again, you know, what does that, you know, what's it actually mean? Um, basically. Um, and then, you know, when you get to the timeless children, I have similar issues. I, you know, again, I feel like it's a thing that has, should have a huge impact for the doctor, um, in terms of, um, as a character and should have a huge impact for the show. But what is it saying? Like Chibnall wanted to tell a very personal story about adoption. And I can respect that that's the thing, you know, that that meant a lot to him. Um, but I don't, I don't really feel like I see what he's saying about it in great detail because I don't think it does tell us a lot about, say, the Doctor's relationship with Tech Taeyun, for example. That doesn't get to be explored in much depth, sadly. Um, I've seen people interpret it as, um, you know, telling a story about um, the Time Lords as, you know, imperialists and the British, you know, kind of making them a parallel to, like, you know, corrupt empires. Um, and, you know... The thing is, um, that's a good metaphor and I like it, but also the, the Time Lords have always been a, or at least since the Deadly Assassin, I would say always been a metaphor for the British Empire or for corrupt empires. So I don't think that's added anything new per se. And that's where my issues start to come in, I think. It's, you know, it's made, you know, is what's it actually added to the show? The fact that I also didn't think the episode this was revealed in was very good on its own merits, um, you know, didn't help me there. But that's, you know, that's why I've tended to prefer the Chibnall era when it's trying new things, you know, when it's um, staying away from lore and it's, you know, showing the Doctor in new situations that they haven't been in before, you know. You know, that's why I liked Series 11 the most, to be honest, because it felt the most fresh in a way and it felt more like a doctor who I haven't seen before, you know? Yeah. I think I have similar feelings about the timeless child reveal in that as an idea, as a plot twist, as an addition to the law, I think I really like the idea behind it. You know, it's kind of anarchic, like, Oh, why do we save as 13 doctors? Let's save as mm. however many doctors you want it to be. I think that's, a lovely idea and I like when she talked about it in interviews I found myself nodding and agreeing with what he's saying about kind of cracking mm -hmm. that open and yet it's revealed in an episode of the Timeless Children but is so law heavy you know it's it, so it's meant to be mm. it, the idea feels like it should be an anarchic disruption to this and yet it's revealed as an episode that references Shabogans and Barusa and the Panopticon you know it feels like such a fanish episode and it's not actually really mm -hmm. going in and trashing well like constantly it's kind of building out of it and it's you know the doctor learns it through just this kind of series of exposition via the matrix like you know they're just strapped you know they're mm. still for an episode being lectured at by the master and it's such a 
so it's kind of almost right there from the start. You've got this great idea for the show being introduced in a way that I just don't think is very engaging. And then it comes on to, you know, what little flux does follow up with it. It's all focused on the division element of it. And, you know, so you've got mm. this one part of it, which is the Doctor is actually, there's loads of Doctors, not just 13. It, you could do, tell any story with it. And that's a really great twist reveal. Mm. And then flux is all focused on the Doctor used to be a secret space cop and has forgotten it because that's ultimately what it comes down to with the division. I think that's the much less interesting part of that reveal. Mm. So then to have a whole six episode arc focus on it. And I think flux does do an all right job at kind of backpedaling a bit on what exactly the division was and making it seem a bit more mysterious and nebulous than that initial reveals. It just becomes slightly more than just doctor used to be a secret space cop, but it's still kind of, Mm. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm frustrated by it. I, I honestly don't know if Chibnall would have done that much more with it if he hadn't been hindered by COVID yeah. the way he was with Flux because it does kind of feel like it was something he wanted to introduce um, to make that change to the law to open it up so that then other people can play with it. It doesn't necessarily feel like he has an idea himself of what he wants to do now that it, there can be yeah. loads of doctors. Mm. It does set it... I mean, it... it I, I, it does set it up for like the multiverse sort of, you know, MCU style because, because the, the space station, which now just has an Ood on it, you know, (laughs) and I love (laughs) it. It's not Brian the Ood, but it's an Ood. Um, It is as sort of in the process of traversing into another universe. And the, the gist was that the gateway that the timeless child was found by, linked to another universe so i think it's it's kind of like putting the building blocks in for potential you know we can now go off and find a new doctor you know we we can we can we can do a lot more with the with the show than potentially could have done beforehand uh so it has broadened it out i think you're right i think it's just very messily left it's like it, 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 there should have been more. Um, I don't know what to, how to describe it. I think I felt a, a sense of disappointment that it was like, is that it? And we we don't get any kind of resolution to that either. The re, the restoration of the memories or a distinct. I don't want to know about these memories anymore, and I'm going to destroy the the Fobotch and carry on as I am, or you know, or the fact that the division was just kept to in in a space station, you know, and and only Carvanista was the only person left, apparently that that knew about the division, and it's kind of like you've got a time machine, and you've already crossed paths with the division in the in the mm. Jay Martin story because that mm. you know she was uh, being uh, hunted down to be arrested, mm. and that's how Jody ended up in prison because she was the doctor and, you know, that was how the crossover happened. So I, 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 I found it a bit incoherent by the time we got to the end. It was like, I'm not quite sure whether you now wish that you'd started down this journey. Because to begin with, you know, all the sort of flashbacks, the Irish cop and all of those things were really beautifully done. And then by the time you got to the end, it was just like, we've got a fog watch, it's got all your memories in it. Do you want it? And she went, no. 
Because I think the idea of, of making the Doctor's origins mysterious again is done by having the Timeless Child found by the gate to the other universe, mm. not by the division stuff. So that could have been wrapped up a bit more neatly. We could have had an explanation of why, when they found this miraculous child that they were able to uh, base their entire civilization on, they decided to make them a, a secret space cop. Um, and then why they ended up stopped doing that, maybe. Um, it, it, it felt like that wasn't the bit that needed to be kept mysterious. The bit before they were found at the gate is the bit that is, is yeah. you know, should always be kept mysterious sort of thing. So that that would have borne more fruit, I think. And is there a planet of of time lords in the other universe that that have the ability, you know, uh, the Doctor's own people, if that makes sense? Because mm. Because now it's like the whole Gallifrey and Time Lords things are thrown into question because the Time Lord Society grew from the Doctor as the as as the child. So presumably somewhere there is a civilization of you know the regenerate people yeah. that, that yeah. can regenerate. So again, it's tantalising that those those things are now out there. But it's whether or not any of that's going to end up being followed up on any, on any level. Yeah. So uh, to to wrap up, what are our favourite Chris Chibnall scripts from the last three years? It, weirdly, all of mine are co-written ones. So when I was going through my list of, of, of the stories that I really enjoyed, they're all ones that have been co-written, and, and we've we've mentioned them. So Rosa, for example, is my is my standout one. Um, the Demons of the Punjab, the um, Fugitive, the Judean, they're all ones that have been co-written, um, which is because I actually quite like some of Chibnall's writing before he was the showrunner, mm. and some of the stuff he did with Torchwood. But I, I do like the collaborations that he's done. Um, so I, I like those. Um, yeah, they, those would be the ones that I would I would choose. Yeah, The Haunting of Little Dear Daddy was co-written as well, wasn't it? Um, yeah. I guess one of my favourites as well. Yeah, that's, uh, I'm, I'm probably in a similar sort of um, place to that as well, the, the co-written ones. Are. I think to, to step away from the co-written ones, like there are plenty mm. of the co-written ones I could definitely pick, but just to focus on Chibnall as a writer on his own, I think an episode that really worked for me in a way I wasn't necessarily expecting. I don't think it's perfect by any means, but Eve of the Daleks, I really mm. love. I think it's a great premise. I think it's a brilliant understanding mm. of and then utilisation of the limita- limitations of filming during COVID. It's absolutely an episode mm. that's built and designed around that, and that's obviously got to be a part of any conversation around it. But I just think it really makes the best use of that. You know, it has two amazing guest actors to play these guest characters because it knows you're stuck with them for a whole episode because of the nature of it and that they're, you know, much, get a much bigger part than a lot of guest characters in this era do. And um, I think really it's all is actually one of these general stories where in amongst all the time loops and dying stuff, it is built around this emotional moment. This It's built around mm-hmm. these side characters' relationship, but how that's also reflected in this kind of burgeoning romance between the Doctor and Yaz. And we Mm. haven't talked about it much, and I do have a lot of issues with how Mm. it was or rather wasn't resolved in the following two episodes. 
But yeah. that I remember watching Eve of the Daleks probably about two in the morning, having worked um, a closing mm. shift on New Year's Day and getting in, getting home, watching it, and being so kind of shocked by the moment that they actually acknowledged in the text, in the dialogue, this relationship, this attraction that Yaz has to the Doctor, that, you know, people have been talking about at different levels um, for years since the start of the era, and I, I think, you know, I think it could have been better more, I think it could have done more with it, but that moment that it was actually acknowledged, because I think I'd gotten to a point where I'd assumed it was never going to be acknowledged explicitly, mm. was really shocking, and I think it was the best surprise in the era for me. I think it was more of a surprise than any of the kind of big returning character reveals or anything in that I just was not expecting the show to go there, and I think... Mm it gets the best scenes out of Mandy, out of John Bishop and out of Jodie Whittaker in that episode by them having to talk about that. And it's a shame with where it went, but I'm so glad that it's there in that episode. It's Yaz's coming out story, isn't Mm. it, essentially? And and I think watching the reaction on Twitter afterwards, it resonated with so many people. Um, and, And I felt that that episode... We did do justice to that relationship. Yeah. I, I, and I entirely agree that the next episode, it felt horribly artificially stuck on at the end. And then by the time you got to Power of the Doctor, it was almost forgotten about. There were, there were, there were moments, but the, it was kind of like, I, I'm going to die now and I want to do it on my own, so I'm going to drop you off. And it... And it you never got the, and, and again, a bit like the timeless child, you never got the payoff. It was kind of like, here's where the story's going, but actually now we're going to have to try and wrap things up. And I, and I, and I think he probably left too much to be satisfactorily wrapped up in the end. The thing is, I think Thasmin was brought in as an afterthought, is my honest feelings on how it was handled. And that's a shame, because the first queer romance between a doctor and a companion was a really, you know, important story to tell. It's nice that they wanted, they recognised this was something that a lot of fans latched onto, and they tried to bring it into the story. But I think the way they went about it, yeah, was very disappointing. And I think that's an element we've praised this era for its diversity, and... That's, you know, and, you know, in many ways it has made a lot of, done a lot of firsts, including writing the first queer romance um, between a doctor and a companion. But that's, um, you know, I think in terms of LGBT rep, Matt Stevens um, said in an interview before the era began that there would be um, representation across the spectrum, uh, you know, and that, you know, something along those lines. And, um, by a very, very technical definition, sort of, is the basic response I have to that. You have the gay couple in Praxius, who are wonderfully written, actually, I think. That's a really good story. You have Angstrom, who has a dead wife. That's that's what we learn about her. That's how we know, and that's the only reference to her sexuality. We have um, the uh, daughter-in-law, something... Um, a daughter-in-law's the daughter-in-law's wife or something of um is, is it in um the niece something like that the mm. niece's wife that was it <laughs> in um thingy in in the uk who 
you know, we learn that about her. And then later in the episode, she dies. You know, she's just a red shirt. Um, you know, we have um, King James, who, again, I think is um, pretty well, you know, the nature of his sexuality is, I think, pretty well explored as a guest character. Um, but, you know, it's... Um, you know, the fact that, you know, it's nice that the show didn't ignore the fact that King James was probably bisexual. Um, and then, you know, you have um, in Resolution, you have a guy who um, says he's got some, you know, again, mentions having a boyfriend and dies immediately. Um, you know, and then you have Thasmin and what well, we discussed what was going on there. And after, you know, a show that, had previously introduced Jack, who did, I suppose, return for this era. Um, you know, a show that gave us Bastor and Jenny and Bill, a show that, you know, throughout some, um, you know, throughout seasons one to ten, broadly speaking, with some dips, has generally sought to be as diverse as possible in sexuality in a period where, you know, probably succeeded in doing more in a period that it's been harder for TV in general to get queer up out you know now there's loads of shows that are doing loads of groundbreaking stuff Bryn mentioned we are lady parts earlier by nina Mansell. that has some wonderful queer rep in it um you know there's loads more shows and i don't need to list them all um but you know doctor who feels like it's behind on that you know for the first time in a while and that's been a shame of this era and i suppose um, in light of that it is interesting to look to the future in terms of, you know, Russell T. Davies as a gay man himself, who's been, you know, a pioneer for mm. throughout his career, returning to the show. And, you know, we already know he's bringing in, um, you know, a trans actor for the specials to play yeah. what is going to be a trans part in the show, you know, and I think that's something that I'm very happy to see. Mm. Um, and it's also interesting in terms of you talking about the wider TV landscape having much more and better LGBT rep now to the point where Doctor Who feels mm. like it's lagging behind. So it's interesting in light of that that he's recruiting actors from shows like Sex Education and Heartstopper mm. who are kind of at yes. the forefront of that. So, yeah. Mm. To go back to um, Eva the Daleks, uh, that, that was mm. your pick there, Bryn. Something I hadn't realised, uh, I found in a, Russell, uh, in a Radio Times interview from April, uh, is that you wrote that script in just over a week mm. um, when, when the initial plans um, fell apart. So I think, again, talking, talking about the strengths, that is, is you know, a pretty good achievement, I think, to um, to write a script of that quality in, uh, in a week or so. Yeah, really yeah especially yeah, given, you know, with other scripts in the era, how Chibnall has often been criticised for right, to having, you know, producing first draft whether that's things like battle of residence graph calls where he himself has admitted it's a first draft or whether it's fans making assumptions about what might or might not be a first draft you know even the Daleks, if it was written in 10 days obviously there will have been a script editing process but it does seem like that is a very quickly written script and potentially more of a first draft than a lot of things he wrote and yet there is an absolute quality there so mm. you know mm. and there's plenty of stories from previous eras you know particularly the Davies era which obviously is an era we have very well documented about scripts being written in four days you know a long weekend mm. and it's not an ideal situation any writer wants to be in and yet with a show as big as Doctor Who where you you know it kind of keeps rolling on and you've got to 
you know, if you want to do a New Year special, you've got to put it out on the 1st of January. You can't say, oh, no, we'll have a New Year special in February. Um, you know, that kind of machine of it and having to deal with that is a challenge. But, you know, mm. I think a lot of writers, you know, will say they want to be on a Doctor, a Doctor Who showrunner. And it's there's a lot to it. It's a, it's not, not going to be easy for anyone. So any writer who's managed to do that, like Chris Chibnall has for, um, you know, three full series, uh, well, to you know a significant mm. amount of episodes is an impressive feat you know just to achieve that on its own and we can go around all the time you know talking about the quality of his work and comparing it to previous showrunners but i think we've just got to give him mm. credit for actually yeah. you know getting episodes made and actually especially mm. with flux getting episodes made during one of the hardest mm. times for television production possibly ever you know mm. yeah mm. yeah i think yeah, if I was to pick a couple, I, I listed most of the Chibnall episodes I thought I really loved. But I think if I had to pick, yeah, the high points in particular, I'll, I'll go for the beginning and the ending. Um, I think The Woman Who Fell to Earth is a really well put together introduction to the era that, you know, it's, uh, it, it may not be a, you know, 11th hour level like classic out the gate, but it's a really strong introduction to um, just making something new and fresh and exciting. Um, making Doctor Who feel like that again um, after, you know, six years of the Moffat era, which I loved. Um, sorry, six seasons of it, you know. It's, um, you know, it's, um, you know, it's, you know, it's suddenly you're excited for Doctor Who and it's new again. I think it does a good job of establishing who um, Graham and Ryan and Yaz are and, you know, who this new Doctor is. Um, you know, I think... Um, Tim Shaw was criticised for as a villain for being brought back for the finale, but I think he works very well as a distinct one-off villain in that episode. You know, um, you know, a, a villain who wears his, uh, the teeth of his victims is a horrifying but um, you know delightful touch. Um, you know, there's um, you know, there's you know, um, yeah, I um, have issues with um, you know the first season with a female doctor being built on the fridging of a um, black woman. But, um, you know, Grace is a wonderful and vibrant character. Um, you know, when Bradley Walsh um, and when Bradley Walsh um, monologues about has Graham's monologue at the end, he really moves me, you know. Um, I think when, you know, Jodie Whittaker talks about, um, has a little Troughton-esque monologue about remembering her family, um, you know, that's... Um, that's a wonderful moment. It feels like, you know, he's settling into a new vision for what Doctor Who can be, how the Doctor relates to um, people. It's, um, and that's wonderful. I think, um, and yeah, I think when he closes it out in um, Power of the Doctor, it's, um, you know, again, it's an episode that has its flaws um, and that has things that we've criticised a bit. But um, it's, you know, it's still just like, it's one that I'd gone into off the back of Legend of the Sea Devils, which I didn't enjoy so much, mm. but I was like, and I was ready to like, you know, I wasn't sure whether I was going to um, enjoy it and get the send off I, I was hoping for, but I just had a, such a great fun time through all of it. You know, um, Sasha Dewan is just delightful in this one. Um, just such a powerhouse performance from him. Um, you know, it's, um, yeah, I think, gosh, the, um, you know, any yeah. While you know, I will 
rail against fan service for the sake of it. You know what? It's it's the centenary special. It's Jody's send off. Like I am, I am, and and my fan lizard brain loves seeing Davison yeah. interact with Janet Fielding, and it loves seeing mm-hmm. McCoy interact with Sophie Aldred as much as anyone. And both those scenes are really rather touching, actually, and nicely written. I think. Um, and yeah, I think the send off for Jodie at the end is really quite beautiful and moving actually, you know, um, a closing scene with Yaz looking out on the earth, that, you know, from the TARDIS, the ice cream is just really touching and sweet. Um, you know, um, the doctor's closing words being tag your it. That just feels completely right for Jodie as a character um and for her performance and her doctor and um so yeah it's yeah it's it's um not a perfect send-off but it's still you know it's still nice and feels true to everything that the era was so you know Hmm. i think there's a suggestion that at the time when they made it they didn't know whether they're would be any any episodes immediately picking up from it as well. So I think mm. it's another reason why why you can excuse the the fan service in it. It could have mm. been sort of a bit of a full stop on on, on Doctor Who for for a little while there as well. Uh, yeah, I think you're talking about Tim Shaw there. He's interesting. Uh, you know, he's he's the kind of returning new villain, um, and almost made me think. I've, I've always long thought that you know, sort of um, a lot of these characters might come back, like. Um, Lenny Henry's character from Spyfall. Mm. Um, is it a Krasno from from Rosa? Krasko, I think. Krasko, mm. Krasko. That, that there's a lot of characters who just sort of leave um, or uh, teleport away that I, I was suspected would come back. And even the power of the Doctor, when the trailer said, "Oh, you know, the Master and his followers, or something like that, are amassing against you," I thought, "Oh, it's going to be all these <laughs> villains that." Didn't really ever get their comeuppance or anything. Um, that just uh, they just sort of wandered off at the end of the story. Um, mm. And I, I wonder whether the you know the reception to the Battle of Rabscore after Colos, you know, maybe put him off, uh, bringing people back to some extent, you know, leaving mm. them as yeah. like one off. Yeah, it feels like this era's legacy in terms of you know things it's introduced, which I think will continue on to be a part of Doctor Who in the future, whether that's on television or in other mediums is more in the kind of, you know, additions of, you know, a new master, the Joe Martin Doctor. The, I think a lot of the excellent side characters in Flux have potential for, you know, if not television, then EU, Big Finish spin-offs. But I feel like in terms of villains, you know, I mean, I could absolutely see Big Finish putting the pating in a box there, but I'm not sure that the villains of the Chibnall era, the original villains, that is, will mm. have the same impact as some of Moffat or RTD's creations, mm. um, you know. But, I mean, only time will tell in that regard, but mm. it'll be interesting to see. And if Chris Chibnall were to follow Russell T. Davis and Stephen Moffat's lead and do a target novelization of one of his stories... Where you could really expand on it and, and get a lot more insight. Uh, which ones would we choose to be novelised? I would choose Flux um, because I feel there's a story that we never saw, and through writing, he's got the opportunity to to, to broaden out all of those sort of themes that are kind of left hanging by the end of it. And I, and I think yes, it would be it would be a series of books. I would imagine rather than one big. <laughs> 
you know, one big volume of them. Um, but it would be really nice to to flesh out some of the interactions, particularly with the Doctor and uh, Tetuine, and 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 really sort of delve into a little bit more about the timeless child. But but also give some of the other characters like. Bell, for example, um, you know, who's, <laughs> we get this this whole story of the the love story between Bell and Vinda, and then it, it's like, oh, we, you know, they're chasing each other around the universe, trying to find each other, and then they find each other, and it was like, oh, great, we're back together, and that's you know, with the the as yet unborn child, really, <laughs> really weird way of saying it. But I mean, I, I just wish that actually. You know, some of those characters are, are really interesting and I'd like to know more about them. I think the only character for me that really stands out in that, in, in, in well, actually two, Kevin McNally's yeah. brilliant um, and Carvanista, you know, is, is like, I want to know more about Carvanista. So, you know, give me a, uh, a flux um, sort of series of books and I would love to read those. Yeah, I'd, I'd, um, I completely agree with what James just said. Like, I, I think Flux would be a great idea. I think I even mentioned on a previous um, one of these podcasts where I'd suggested that you could do it as two books in the style of how the Dark's Master Plan target novelization is split into two separate Ooh. books. And, yeah, ma- ma- make Chibnall work, make him write, you know, a novel-length thing. <laughs> um, but um, my, my idea for an episode I'd love to see him do a novelization of is actually um, Resolution, Partly because mm. I think you could finally give it in the novel form its full title and put Resolution of the Daleks on the cover <laughs> um, to fit in with that uh, pattern. But also just I think, you know, there's a lot going on in that story. It's one of the first sort of Chibnall era stories that was solo written by Chibnall that I really, really loved. You know, it really felt there's a lot of stuff I like in Series 11. And yet at the same time, it really felt like a breath of fresh air coming after it, you know, bringing in the Daleks and I think it genuinely has an original take on the Daleks and I think it it does this um it feels like a special like the New Year's special vibe and it's harder I think to do a New Year's special than a Christmas special because a Christmas special Mm. you do a slightly bigger than normal episode and put some Christmassy stuff in it and it feels Mm -hmm. special because Christmas is quite special whereas New Year's I don't think has the same impact of Christmas so how do you make that story big when it's Mm. not a, red, a regeneration or a returning character or whatever. And obviously you've got returning lots of the dikes, but I also just think um, there's a sense of scale to it um, in terms of, you know, location filming. There's that car chase sequence and stuff, you know, that um, is really nice. And um, I'd just be interested to see, you know, I can I'm absolutely imagine what you do with the prologue in terms of the battle to bring down the Dalek that happened prehistorically and how it was split up into the parts. And, Thing, there's a sort of trope in the Chibnall era where you get, you know, cuts to lots of different parts of the world very briefly. And while that on TV, I'm not sure, you know, it's obviously an attempt to add to the sense of scale. I'm not sure it always works. I think in novels where you can actually flesh out those parts, it could be um, more compelling. And I love the idea of maybe getting, you know, a chapter from a first person perspective of Charlotte Ritchie's character where maybe you have the Daleks' thoughts intruding on the first person narrative mm. so it's first person from her perspective but the dalek is butting in with its own first person i think that'd be a really clever thing you could do with the form there if you were doing that novelization 
I think we should get you to write the resolution novelization. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, Andrew. Yeah, I mean, it. if anyone's offering, you know, I'm free. Um, but yeah, if I if I was to pick, um, well, the serious pick, I'll, I'll do my serious pick first. Would be Woman Who Fell to Earth, just like Ross D. Davis did with Rose. I mean, it was the it was the big moment for this era. It, was, it came in with a bang, and it was it felt fresh and exciting and new and everyone was talking about it for that moment and i think that was you know and i think that's the thing to that's worth um that makes it worth doing i think it's um i think like i said i think it's a pretty well structured and paced story that has you know you know details that are worth um digging into i think it would be a nice time basically i think it would just make for a solid um you know novel adaptation I think it's probably Chibnall's strongest script for the show. Definitely a contender. Um, my my really silly pick, just because I want to pick one that doesn't feel obvious, um, is, you know what, sod it. Go for the timeless children, Chibnall. Just do it. Just to drive everyone crazy that I, I i i'd live to see you know I've, I've i've said i don't personally like the episode but i'm absolutely here for chibnall just you know throwing a wrecking ball at fandom again you know That's... so the way you were building up that reveal i was hoping you were going to say the saranga conundrum oh no I like it's so easy to forget that he even wrote that almost it doesn't even mm. feel particularly with his style but yeah i'd mm. love to see a toy novel of that I should have said the Saranga conundrum now. That would have been funnier. <laughs> I, I kind of drawn towards the ghost monument because I feel like there's a, mm. there's a bit of world building in that that isn't really um, kind of capitalized on you when they, they talk about the, um, I forgot the characters' names, but the you know there's two people left in the... Uh, in the, in the camp, so. Yeah. Yeah, and the guy says, oh, you know, like people have sung songs about my ship and stuff. And it's this idea that this race has a big following that there's loads of fans mm. that follow it and things like that and um but then like there's nobody there at the finishing line or anything you <laughs> kind of it goes kind of mm. like crowd of people to be there or for them to be in, being filmed in some way like how you know if they if they've got fans who <laughs> how are they following the action sort of thing um but so you could do something with that and make it into this bigger spectacle and bigger event and things um so yeah that that's one I, I'd, I'd be interested to to see a bit more of the thing that's bothered me since the beginning of the chimney is, is from you talking about the the woman who fell to earth there, is that the doctor finds out that the um, the the aliens Tim Shaw uh, and and his race uh, have been kidnapping people from Earth and uh, and putting them in suspended animation. Mm. So we know there's loads of humans in suspended animation uh, that have been kidnapped, and the doctor makes no attempt to sort of go and rescue them or uh, find out where they are or anything like that. Uh, I felt like that was going to be something that was uh, was going to revisit it, and never was. It's a good point. I hadn't thought of that. Yeah, it never, <laughs> never occurred to me. We're just, we're yeah. just like the Doctor. We've just forgotten about those humans. <laughs> <laughs> just like, oh yeah, we've been doing this for years. We've been kidnapping. We just keep the lines of animation. All oh, right, okay. <laughs> yeah, regeneration, amnesia, something, something. Some, yeah. There's, there's some Alistair Beckett King. Um, sketch where um, yeah, it was um, popular t- every episode of popular time travel show, um, and it just um, like at the end of it, it's um, the person um, 
yeah, they're like, um, and it's Doctor and Companion are talking to inhabitant of the planet they've just saved, and they say, "Thank you, Doctor, you have saved our people of uh, Hitler Seven. And and the companion just goes, "Wait, what?" Um, in response to that, some <laughs> is. Um, <it's>, yeah. <laughs> Jim Lear does have a few moments that give me those vibes specifically. Mm. <laughs> Where I think, yeah, he just didn't quite think through the implications. Or um Yeah, I think the the as yet unborn child having sentience as well is something that uh that, that maybe had wider implications. Than, uh, <laughs> than don't go there, from. Mark. Just don't just don't <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's been fantastic to, to, to cover the Chibnall era. Um, it was a really good conversation. Thank you very much. Uh, if you'd like to tell our listeners where we can find you and your work online. Uh, well, yeah, uh, so I am Jixter2009 on Twitter, and I also do a regular YouTube uh, talking about Doctor Who with my colleagues Paul and Jason from uh, Phantom Publishing. Yeah, I am at B Mitchell underscore Twitter. That's T W I T R um, on Twitter. And from there, you'll be able to find a link to my reviews on We Are Cool and also to my um, WordPress blog, which basically just has a list of where you can find me online. I've um, recently recorded an episode of Who Cares podcast talking about Dark Season, Mm. Russell T. Davies' first um, Mm. TV drama, excellent piece of children's science fiction. So if you want to hear me witter on about that, um, yeah, look out for that. Hell hell yeah, I want to listen to that. Um, (laughs) What was I going to say? Um, Yes, so I'm... Andrew, um, you can I've um, I blah, blah, blah. you can find me on Twitter. Um, I'm also desperate for attention. Um, you can find me on Twitter at some um, at scarves and C um, at scarves and celery, um, where I talk about Doctor Who stuff and retweet nonsense joke tweets and say, you know. Um, let myself occasionally get political. Um, I share original fiction that I've written on my and nothing else on my writing account, Andrew Davis Writer. Um, and I also um, run the fan series, the Twelfth Doctor Fan Audios. So if you're into that sort of thing, um, it's a fan series about it's a fan audio drama about the Twelfth Doctor, um, played by the brilliant impressionist Guillaume Babet. And um, it's um, yeah, is in it. He's the twelfth Doctor going on new adventures with um, a companion, a new companion, um, Ella Fitzalan. Um, and yeah, they um, meet exciting new monsters and um, exciting and some old um, favourites. And um, yeah, it's a bunch of really fresh and exciting stories written by a really diverse and some um, talented group of fans that. Um, we have some really interesting stories to tell, and I fully recommend checking them out. Thank you very much. I'll put links in the show notes to, to all of those. Thanks very much for listening. You can find Trap One as at Trap One underscore on Twitter. Uh, you can find all our previous episodes at trapone.podbean.com or on your podcatcher of choice. Uh, don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And please consider leaving us a, a hopefully five star review and a positive uh, a five-star rating and a positive review that'd be very much appreciated join us next time another panel will be talking about something else from the world of doctor who but in the meantime thanks for listening goodbye <laughs>